Tama Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. James Glick will join us to discuss the information. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Welcome back to the Grox Science Show. Well, we're constantly inundated by it, so much so that some of us may wonder if we can even escape it. It is, of course, information, and its abundance, pervasiveness, and accessibility have never been greater than it is now. Well, how did we get to this point, and where are we going? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. James Glick. Mr. Glick is the renowned science author who has penned such works as Chaos and Genius, The Life and Science of Richard Feynman. His latest work, The Information, A History, A Theory, and A Flood, explores this topic for a general audience. Uh, Mr. Glick, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. That's my pleasure. Well, it's certainly our pleasure to have you on the program, and this is really a fascinating book, The Information Here, in which you sort of outline the history of the development of information and how or different means of transmitting information. I'm curious, so what drew you to this particular topic? Well, I've been thinking about it for a long time, and it, it started when I was working on a different book, on my book about chaos, and I started hearing from scientists about a thing they called information theory as a very technical piece of mathematics and engineering. And, well, naturally, I wanted to know what that is. We all know we're living in the information age. That's been a cliche for 50 years now. And we have vague ideas about information. And, you know, it's it's all through history. It's been a general topic. It's been a word that includes news and facts and abstract things like that. So it seemed odd to me that a scientist would create a mathematical theory that enabled you to measure something that seems unmeasurable. You introduced very early on one of the key scientists in this whole development is Claude Shannon. Yeah, that's right. And and this happened at a very specific time. It was 1948, just at the middle point of the last century, the same year that the transistor was invented at Bell Labs, where Claude Shannon worked. And so in a way, Claude Shannon's invention, which included the notion of the word bit as a unit measure of information, you know, yes or no, on or off, a binary digit, laid the groundwork for this modern era that we all find ourselves living in with CDs and computers in our pockets and the ability to record music in all different sorts of media and then play it back whenever we want to. It's uh, there's a connection, that is, between the, the science of information theory and the uh, fast-changing world that we find ourselves living in. So up until this point, had uh, scientists not really tried to look at this as a, a scientific subject or quantify or describe information? No, not until this very specific time at the middle of the, of the 20th century, because it didn't seem like there was anything there for scientists to wrap their hands around. But... Bell Labs, of course, was the research laboratory at AT AT&T, the the great telephone empire. And they had, as you can imagine, a profound interest, a financial interest in understanding how best to send 
the particular kind of information they were sending across telephone lines. Now, they didn't call it information. They thought they were sending sound in the form of electricity across these wires. But it became a more general phenomenon. And, of course, they had been through the telegraph era where the information was being sent not in waves but in dots and dashes. And then television came on the scene, and what was being sent across those same wires in what seemed to be the same kinds of electrical impulses was pictures along with sound. So they needed a general way to describe all of this stuff. And now, in our digital era, we know that it can all be broken down into bits and measured and calculated, and, and that makes all of these different pieces of the modern world possible. So this theoretical understanding of information as uh, something that can be manipulated has allowed more efficient transfer of it. Right. Of course, what that means is that as consumers and as, as citizens of this world, we've all become consciously or unconsciously experts on information. Um, we know that in some fundamental way, a photograph and a song are cousins because they can, they can uh, be broken into bits and recorded on our computer disks and transferred to our friends' iPads and so on. People didn't always think of these seemingly different types of information as being related species. But now that we know what we know, it's possible to look back through history at, uh, at earlier information technologies and, and with fresh eyes, I think, the development of the printing press the development of the telegraph. At the very dawn of history, the invention of the alphabet. All of these things are related because they're technologies of information. So it's those older stories that I'm trying to tell as well as the, the newer stories. Well, the, the book actually does go through uh, quite a long and really fascinating history of uh, the development of uh, all these little de- of devices that you talk about for conveying information. <laughs> a history of the whole world? <laughs> so well, well, let me give you just one example instead of taking you through the whole history. Uh, this is one of the first cases I start with in the book. It's the talking drums of Africa. When Europeans first started exploring Africa in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, they gradually discovered they were kind of, you know, we we might look back now and and laugh at them. It took them so long to figure it out. But they gradually discovered that in many different parts of Africa, messages were being transmitted by drums faster than any European form of communication. That is, this is before the telegraph was invented. So in Europe, if you wanted to send a message from one town to another, the fastest way to do it was uh, a man on a horse. In Africa, drums could send messages five or six miles on a quiet night and then be relayed by another drummer. And it turned out that the drummers were sending very complicated messages, not just yes or no, not just let's attack or let's go to church, messages that Europeans could send with bugles and church bells, but anything you could say in the words of a language, the African talking drums could say by drums. And that was an amazing thing for Europeans to realize. And it was only long after the telegraph enabled Europeans to start catching up and communicate faster and more efficiently that they figured out how Africans were doing it. Code format, in a way. Yes, there's a sort of encoding there, but it's very different from Morse code. 
Europeans naturally started to think there must be something like dots and dashes, but it wasn't like that at all. And it's really only now that we have information theory and the various tools it provides that we can look back and see how the, how the talking drum languages worked. So what does the theory then tell us about how the talking drum language worked? The examples of the drum language are just fascinating because they seem very long-winded. They're colorful in a way that Homer's poetry is colorful, lots of sort of flowery phrases. And it turns out that the, the reason for those phrases was that they added redundancy. They enabled this encoding from the complex sounds of the human voice to the much simpler sounds of a drum that just beat two different tones. All of this was worked out in the middle of the 20th century, and then, of course, one of the great ironies is that the next generation of Africans is communicating by cell phones. There were whole generations of Africans who went directly from talking drums to cell phones, and they're sad now that the, that the skills of the drummers are being lost. One of the things that's uh, somewhat interesting is that development of what we think of as computing devices, for example, Charles Babbage, uh, thought of as the founder of, of computer, preceded that of an information theory. Isn't that somewhat odd? Yeah, Charles Babbage is another of the, the important figures in my book. And he was, he was very, very famous in his time, living in England in the 1840s. He was a mathematician, and he was a, an important public figure, and, and he persuaded the British government to spend what was then an enormous amount of money on his project trying to build a mechanical, they didn't call it computer, he called it actually the difference engine, a peculiar name. It was an engine that was meant to print out tables of numbers. It was a sort of vast calculating machine. And his conception of it was so complicated that it leapt ahead of the available technology and became a complete failure. They were never able to complete the finished version of this thing, which would have weighed tons and had just thousands of gears and intricate wheels. And eventually the, the British government, the English government, grew frustrated and dumped him. And so Babbage was forgotten. In the early part of our century, nobody would have heard of him, certainly no Americans, until our com computer era, when people went back and looked at his papers and realized that in very real and profound ways, he had invented the first computer. It was in his mind, not in the real world of gears and levers. And I won't say it's tragic, but it's at least sad that he was never able to live to see his vision vindicated. He was really a man who lived out of his time. Uh, another of the characters that you talk about in the book as being influential in this whole process is Ada Byron King. Well, Ada Byron, the beautiful daughter of the poet Lord Byron, she lived a really tragic life. She, and she knew Babbage and worked with Babbage. She was much younger and had, we can see now, an amazing mathematical gift. But because she was a woman living in Victorian England, she had no opportunity to be a professional mathematician. She couldn't even attend university. Babbage knew how smart she was, and they worked together for some time. And she was even more imaginative and far-seeing than he was. She really deserves the title of the first computer programmer. She understood that the machines that he was thinking about could be used not only to manipulate numbers, but she imagined to manipulate music or language or any of the other types of information that we know computers are made to deal with. Then, in her 30s, she died a terrible early death of, from cancer, 
in great pain, and uh, she too was forgotten until uh, she was rediscovered at the beginning of the computer era. And of course, anyone who's heard of Boolean logic has also heard of George Boole. Well, George Boole was another person uh, in later in the century in England. And then there are other computer pioneers in, in our century who are also an important part of our, sto- of our story. Kurt Gödel, not a computer pioneer in his case, a mathematician. And then Alan Turing, another mathematician who invented Turing machines, as, as scientists now call them, another imaginary form of computer that, that basically just involved some mental analog of paper tape. These were really pioneering figures who would not have thought of themselves as information theorists, but we can see now in retrospect that their work built in a, uh, not a direct path, but a a roundabout path to the work that was uh, finally completed by Claude Shannon at Bell Labs. And what was it that Claude Shannon's insight was? How was it that he was able to really sort of quantify information? And what, if if you can, was his theory in distillate? An important idea was recognizing that the smallest individual unit of information is the bit, as he called it. That was short for binary digit. And it's a yes or no choice. It's like the flipping of a coin, heads or tails. And we're familiar with that now. We know that computers process, you know, think in, terms of, in binary terms of ones and zeros. What he recognized was that everything that they were trying to send across telephone wires at Bell Labs and every place else, could be broken down into these units, either a one or a zero, a yes or a no, and that there was an identity between logic. George Boole, who you mentioned a few minutes ago, invented a form of symbolic logic that also used truth or falsity as its basic units. Shannon recognized the commonality between that symbolic logic and what engineers were doing with electricity, and so he designed electronic circuits that were yes or no circuits. And this is a part of what lies at the core of all computer hardware today. There's circuitry that that performs logic. And ability to manipulate is is, is advanced now that we can quantify information in this way. Well, one of the, there there were a bunch of specific technical problems that Claude Shannon was trying to deal with. It was all about trying to squeeze as much information as possible down down a finite pipe that was represented by the electrical circuit. And now we speak in terms of bandwidth. We know that information channels have different capacities. And it's important for us to get as much information as we can through a channel of a given bandwidth. For example, if you're a cable TV company and you're trying to send programming to your subscribers, either through the wires or through a satellite signal, the more different high-definition programs you can send, the more money you're likely to make. On the other hand, if, if you try to squeeze too much down these circuits, there's a danger of quality diminishing. And there's always noise in circuits. Electrical engineers knew that. And so there had to be error correction so that if a message got through with noise interfering with it, it could be corrected at the other end. A lot of technical problems like this had to be solved by the engineers, and it was Shannon's information theory that provided a framework for doing that. And now the information theory has wide-reaching consequences in different fields or contributing to it from everything from uh, quantum physics to molecular biology. Uh, Yeah. Now that we know that information is such a fundamental principle, a fundamental piece of our world, 
we're seeing it everywhere. And you could see this happen. In, uh, there was a lot of excitement in different intellectual disciplines in the 1950s and 60s and, and, uh, and through to our time. Molecular biology is a perfect example where just in that period, scientists were trying to figure out the structure of the gene and were recognizing that what really mattered there was information exactly in the terms that the information theorists were talking about it. DNA is encoding information about the development of uh, biological organisms. It encodes it, and it stores it, and it transmits it. So the language of information theory became also an important part of the language of biology. There's this overwhelming abundance of information and uh, filtering out the relevant information from that, which is uh, less so. Well, that's the end of my story. That's why the subtitle is a history, a theory, a flood. We're in the flood phase, and we're all familiar with the sensation of, of being deluged by too much information. What, what we sometimes forget is that people have always felt that way. After the invention of the printing press, people complained that there were just too many books and that you could never hope to get out from under. And that doesn't mean that it's not true now. It is true. It's just more important than ever for us to develop strategies of searching for the information we want and filtering out the information that we don't want. There tends to be confirmatory bias. Uh, of course, there's a lot of misinformation that one can also find as well. That, that's definitely true. I mean, a, a trivial example of that is, let's say you're wondering about the spelling of a particular word, and, and the problem is that you're spelling it wrong, so you Google it. Well, if you, if you type in the misspelling, Google is going to find many examples of the misspelling because other people misspell it the same way. Now, Google is getting very smart about doing spelling corrections, so in this case they might be able to help. But in the, the cases of facts, uh, if you have a misconception, you're likely to be able to find plenty of other people who share the same misconception. So really then, what is the future for information and how can we handle uh, the flood? Well. We need to be responsible citizens and continue to. <laughs> I don't want to sound. Uh, I don't want to sound like a preacher here, and I don't want to sound Pollyanna-ish. But, but uh, we're still individuals, and as much as as much as we can glory in the advantages of this giant world brain that is being formed, I think it's important for us to preserve our own originality and creativity and judgment, and um, not assume that what the mob thinks is correct. We're more sophisticated now about information, and that enables us to be smarter citizens of the information age. Well, this is certainly, I think everyone should add to their, their own personal collection of information. It is your new book uh, called The Information, A History, A Theory, A Flood. Uh, Mr. Gluck, I want to thank you very much for uh, joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, thanks for having me. And you were just listening to James Glick discussing the, the information. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned.
Okay, it's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is, of course, our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic highly informative or no information whatsoever. The Grokatron 5000 would like to know for the following five individuals whether you think they are highly informative or convey no information whatsoever. Glick, ready to play the game? Okay, I'll give it a try. Okay, here we go. Person number one, highly informative or no information whatsoever. It's uh, number one, it's the actor Charlie Sheen. Well, I can't say that I'm a particular fan of Mr. Sheen's, but I have the impression that he's providing a certain kind of information inadvertently about himself. That may, that may not be informative in the grander sense of the word. <laughs> Let's say accidentally informative. <laughs> okay. All right, number two, it's uh, the Microsoft founder, Bill Gates. Well, he certainly is, has been riding the wave of the information revolution in a, in a spectacular way for many years. Uh, number three, uh, uh, evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. Well, Dawkins actually is a key figure in my book because he was one of the first really to understand that information is the fundamental principle in biology. And he's also the inventor of the word meme, which is uh, one of the buzzwords these days in our information era. Uh, number four, uh, golfer Tiger Woods. Um, Tiger Woods may be certainly a genius of a particular kind, but maybe living in a realm that's not the realm of information. Uh, uh, finally, number five, uh, President Barack Obama. Well, Obama is someone whom I admire very much, and I think uh, one of the lessons of, of this overwhelming information age is that it's important for us not to make judgments too quickly. We're at the beginning of, of his presidency, and I think we should wait and see. Well, Mr. Glick, I want to thank you very much for sticking around playing a game and, of course, talking about your new book, uh, The Information, A History, A Theory, A Flood. Thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank you. Well, this is Rock Science Show. I've been Charles Lee. And I'm Elise. And we'll be back into more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to see us, you can do so uh, on the web. Our web address is www.grox.net. You can also email us at science at grox.net. And we're on Facebook. Have a great afternoon. <laughs>